Well, we're continuing this morning, both of our, our sons up, with our series on encounters with Jesus. And as you know, there are many encounters with Jesus in the Gospels, and some in Acts even with Paul. Um, we've chosen some that we think are representative of those encounters. And this morning, we're going to move back to the front of John's Gospel in John chapter 5 and look at a story about a man being healed. You'll know there are a lot of stories of of God healing um, people in the Gospels through Jesus. And and Matthew tells us that, that, um, that that's representative of what God intends to do for all things. That when Jesus came, Matthew says, before the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people of all kinds of diseases. And the idea here is that the gospel of the kingdom, the holistic gospel, is a gospel that intends to make all things new. It's not just a spiritualized gospel. It's not just a gospel about you getting right with God. It's a gospel about the renewal of all things, of all things. And you see Jesus doing that. You ever wonder why he's healing people just so they can die later, (laughs) right? I mean, the, the, the people he heals, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and yet Lazarus goes and dies again. Why does he do that? Well, he's giving us a foretaste of what the kingdom looks like when it comes in its fullness, that he intends to make the world that we live in now all the way new. All the way new when he comes back and returns. And we get glimpses of that even now. Now, in John's Gospel, in chapter 5, um, if you're paying attention to John's Gospel, you will you'll might remember the chronology. So, in, in, in 1, uh, John says uh, Jesus is the Word that's become flesh. He's the Creator. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. Um, in chapter 3, the first encounter happens with Jesus, and that's the encounter with Nicodemus. And you remember that, that there, uh, Jesus compares the work of the Spirit to the what? Do you remember? To the wind. It's the first instance we get of, of, uh, of Jesus taking this physical material reality and saying this is what is some of the spiritual reality behind it. Then, in chapter 4, right, you have the woman at the well. And all of a sudden, it becomes about not just giving her water to drink, but it becomes about giving her something that will satiate her spirit, her longing and her, her spiritual being as well. You have the miracle of the, uh, the wine being multiplied at Cana. That's not just to keep the party going for the week, right? It's also Jesus saying that I am the new wine. I am the joy that God has come to bring. And so what John has been doing all along is saying, here are some material pictures, some sacraments, if you will, of what God intends to do for us spiritually. No less here in our passage this morning, the big question that Jesus initiates is, do you want to be healed? And that is not just a physical question. That is a question that we need to wrestle with as broken men this morning. Do we want, do we want Jesus to heal us? Let's read now John chapter 5 and see what what the gospel holds out for us as we think about that very question in this encounter. John 5, verses 1 through 17. John writes, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning. We pray, Father, that you would give us insight into how we fit in this, your Word, and how your Word fits into the realities that are our own lives. And we pray most of all that we would see Jesus, we would long for Him, we would be able to rest in Him. Oh God, that you would give us more of yourself through your Word and your Spirit at work through your Word, we pray. We are desperate, oh God, to be healed. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Caitlin Upton uh, became infamous for an answer she once gave to a question she was asked during a beauty pageant. You may remember the incident. It was parodied for months after it happened. This was in 2007. She was competing in Miss Teen USA as Miss South Carolina. And this was the question that was asked her. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think that is? Now, she didn't know the question ahead of time, and you admit it's tough to be asked a question in front of a thousand, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And so you probably, probably what happens is you memorize certain broad, ambiguous answers that you want to insert into whatever question they ask. But here was Caitlin's response. I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because some people out there in our nation don't have maps. And I believe that our education, like such as in South Carolina and the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build a future for our children. Now, do y'all remember this at all? Sort of. I mean, like this was, you know. So Caitlin was a, a good sport about the debacle. She did a number of interviews afterwards, and she became like a contestant on The Amazing Race. But the Today Show gave her an opportunity to do the question over, and her second response was much better. She said, well, personally, my friends and I know exactly where the United States is on our map. And if the stats are correct, I believe that there should be more emphasis on geography and our education so that people will, will know how to read maps better. And so she said that, and the entire studio stood up and applauded. <laughs> and everyone agreed that this answer was much better than the original. <laughs> and it was better because she had time to prepare. You know, she had now thought about the question and was prepared to answer it. This is a question in the Gospels, and 
you'll find as you read the Gospels that encounters with Jesus often start with questions that are really on the surface easy, but much harder in reality to answer. Do you want to be healed sounds like an easy question, but as the story unfolds, we find that it's, it's not that easy. It's not an easy question for this man to answer. Not an easy question for the community around him to answer. It's not a question that's necessarily easy for us to answer. But it's important for us to take it home with us and to aim for honesty because of the consequences of saying either no or yes to the question. I want to look uh, this morning at three things in the encounter. I just want to move through the text as it comes to us. I want us to take first the question of healing here. The question of healing. Second, the source of healing. And then finally, the community of healing. So the question, the source, and the community. First, the question of healing. If you would allow me just to briefly set the scene this morning. Jesus, as John tells us, has come to Jerusalem uh, for one of the Jewish feasts. Jesus was, uh, he was a regular in the regular rhythms of spirituality. You know, as much as he was a radical in some ways, he wasn't a radical when it came to going to church, even though the church didn't always invite him in. He was very committed to the institutional realities of, of, of being in the church and the people of God. And so here he is going to the feast, and he's on his way to the feast. He's one, near one of the gates of the city. There are multiple gates, and he visits a camp of people who are severely disabled. You could read what John says there, many invalids there. And there is a, a pool at the center of this camp, and that pool probably because it contains some nutrients or, or some properties that made people feel better. It was believed to possess some maybe magical, ma- magical properties of healing, of, of making pain go away. And there's a sprawling mass of invalids, of hurting people around this pool. So if you can imagine it this morning, I just want you to imagine in your own mind a really, really, really sad place. This is not a place that, that healthy people would want to hang out. You know, it's a, it's a place of broken lives. It's a place of constantly frustrated hopes. It's a place of desperation. And yet, this is the place that Jesus goes because this is the place where Jesus belongs. Jesus belongs among people who are not well. He belongs among people who don't have it all together. And he goes there, and he's close to this pool, and he reaches out to one man, one man, as representative of other people also, but one man, and says, do you want to be healed? Now, I don't know, if you're thinking about the pool and thinking about the question, doesn't it sound like an insult at first? 38 years, and do you want to be healed? Well, of course I want to be healed, but I don't want you to think about it like that. Think about this first question as Jesus actually reaching out to this man and connecting with a man, imagine, who has never in his life been invited to a party, um, who's never in his life had a night out with his friends, a man who was never, ever able to go to church. And not only is Jesus offering this man his friendship, but also at the same time, he's telling him what the terms of his friendship look like. Friendship with Jesus is not just a friendship of utility and pleasure and and buddy-buddy. Jesus wants to be this man's friend to do what? To heal him. The friendship that Jesus offers to this man is a friendship of him getting better of him becoming someone he could have never become on his own. It's a friendship of healing. The question itself, though, it seems like an insult 
on the sort of, I guess, on the front end of it, like, do you want to be healed? Well, of course I do. I don't think it's so obvious or so easy. So once again, how long has the man been living in his condition? What does it say? 38 years. Anybody want to guess what the life expectancy was of, uh, of a man at that, in, in that time? That's, well, close. It's 45. So think about this. Think about how hard it is to change once you get set in your ways in life. And this man is, you know, 38 years. I mean, I, I'm, I'll turn 40 this year, so I'm, I'm older than this man. But, but this guy is in, he's in the twilight of his life. And so think about all he's done to set up his comfortable routines. He knows the other people at the pool. He knows exactly what to expect the next morning when, he's, when he gets up. In his 38 years, he has learned to manage life as he knows it. And Jesus is asking him to change and to be healed and to enter into a life that he has never known before. His whole life, his routine, his relationships, his identity is all entangled in his handicap. And so though, you know, you think, well, of course you want to be healed, but, I mean, do you want the disruption that comes with being healed? Because what Jesus is saying is, if I heal you and you take up your mat, which means take up your home, you're going you're to live a life that you've never known before and real disruption is going to come into your life. So to say, or do you want to be healed is the same thing as saying, do you want your entire life disrupted? Do you really want that? Do you want, do you want the comfort that you've known, the way you've managed, all that stuff? You, are you ready for that to be totally obliterated and a new way of being and living? Do you want that to happen? Because that's what I'm offering. St. Augustine famously prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Give me chastity, but not yet. Give me the results of change without the pain of change. She might say, Lord, give me humility, but I don't want to be humbled. Right? I don't want to be humbled. Um, give, me, uh, give me a healed marriage, but not at the expense of my golf game or my work habits or my need to be right all the time. Right? Real change is painful. It's disruptive. And, and this is what Jesus is inviting this man to think about. Um, I, I, I watched the, the whole series of Mad Men. I, I appreciated the show. I don't know what you think about it, but I appreciated the show on, on many levels. But the first episode, um, there is a moment at the very end of that episode where Don Draper, who is the main character, the main sort of tragic character as his life unfolds, is an advertising genius, and he's, um, he meets with the executives at a cigarette company at a time when the public is now finding out that the product that they're trying to sell kills people. That's a hard challenge as an advertiser. How are we going to overcome the fact that we're actually asking people to buy something that kills them, right? And so he's there trying to sort of think through that, and you know, in the end he just says, let's just have a billboard that says they're toasted. They're toasted. And he makes this observation about how advertising works, why it works. He says this, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. You know what happiness says? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay. That you are okay. And what this advertising genius is saying to us and about us is that the easiest way into people's pocketbooks 
is not to tell them they need to change. <laughs> the easiest way in people's pocketbooks is to affirm who they already are. That they are already okay without having to change. Convince them that they are okay. Maybe you have people in your life like that who are just always saying, it's okay, you're okay. That is not the friendship that Jesus offers. He wants you to see the ways that you're not okay, and he invites us and this man to, to walk into the process of being changed by him. So the question is not that obvious. And it's something to think about for, for us as men. You know, do we really want to be healed? If you're going to be honest with each other and think about the things that are, that are wrong with us, our anger, our pride, our, our greed, the things that, that we've learned to manage, broken relationships, do we want those things to be healed? That's the first point that the passage brings up for us. I will say this. One famous author puts it like this. I think this is helpful. He says, when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing, then you're right for making a move. Let me say that again. When the pain of staying the same, in other words, when you start feeling it, is worse than the pain of change, then you are right for making a move. If that's you, then let's consider next the source of healing. Second thing we learn in the passage that John brings out for us in this episode. Okay, so verse 7, look there with me. Do you want to be healed? What does the man say? He says, I think, you know, implicitly yes. But where does the man think he needs to go to get healed? What does he say? Take me where? Take me to the pool. When the water is stirred up in a certain way, I guess all those things would get stirred up. You know, I can, I can be healed there. And then he makes an excuse, you know, someone's always stepping in front of me. So you start wondering, does he really want to be healed at all? But sir, get me to the pool. And I think it's important to, to see that, that uh, the man, when Jesus asks him this question, wants the pool, and the Bethesda pool represents everything that he thinks he wants. Right? The Bethesda pool represents the thing that will heal him. It's his goal. It's his, his vision of the good life. Lord, get me down to there and everything will work out. Can you relate to that at all? Now think about this. Do you have something in your imagination that you say to God, Lord, if I can only get there, then everything will be okay? Do you have a Bethesda pool in your own imagination? Jesus, if you will just get me to this place in my career. If I could just have this relationship back. If I could get to this, this bottom line financially that will finally allow us to relax. If I could make this deal happen. If I could get to this place in my marriage with my kids, then I would be okay. You ever thought that? At the end of the, uh, the Great Gatsby, at some point you did not get through high school and not have to read that book, I don't think. But you may not remember it. Okay, so um, it's, I tell you what, it's worth going back and reading, not to have to, too. It's not that long. But you may remember the story, even if you've just seen the movie, and that would be okay, too. That, um, that Gatsby is infatuated. You know, he's, he's coming to new money, basically. But he's infatuated with something he can't have, and that's Daisy. And so he'll go out at night, and he'll look at this, this green light on, on Daisy's dock. And that green light is his Bethesda pool. That represents everything that he doesn't have right now that he thinks if he does have, will finally make him happy. 
And the novel is important on, on many levels, but it, it's important because it's coping with the reality that the 20th century brought unparalleled optimism about what we might have, but also the reality that when we achieve those things, it's not deeply satisfying. So the way that Gatsby ends his novel is this. Um, some people say the greatest American novel of the 20th century. It ends like this. It says, he says, excuse me, Fitzgerald ends his novel. It eluded us then. And when he says the it is that long green light or the Bethesda pool. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster. We will stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning, and then there's a hyphen that cuts the sentence off. And he says, he writes, So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And his point is, his point is that you don't get your pool. You'll never get your pool. (laughs) He never gets the green light. He never gets Daisy. Or you'll find that if you do get it, it will be an utter disappointment. That the Bethesda pool that we're after is not sufficient to carry the weight of our hopes and dreams. The weight of us being healed. The water will be stirred, you'll feel it in your hands, and it will slip through them. And it won't be enough. And so just notice in the story, it's very simple, Jesus never brings up the pool again. Like the man wants the pool, it's all he wants, and Jesus never brings it up again. It's the end of the talk about the pool, right? Because Jesus knows the real pool is him. He is the, he is the pool that this man needs. He is, as John has told us, he's the word through which the world has been made. He's the living water that the woman was seeking and all the husbands she had had. He is the good wine that he multiplied at the wedding at Cana. He is God given to us. And then Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. What do you think he means by take up your bed? He means you're not coming back. The life I'm calling you to, you're not invited to go back to Egypt as the children of Israel wanted to go back to. You have to get up, you have to take up your bed where you sleep, your home, because you're never going back there again. You're not going back to your old life. The point here that I think John wants us to see, and that's the point he makes throughout his gospel, is that Jesus and Jesus alone, not our fascination with our hopes and dreams or anything else we want in life, can finally bear the weight of this man's desperation, his suffering, and his restlessness. Jesus has not come to get you somewhere else. He has come to take you into himself and to keep you there. He has not come to be someone who leads you somewhere else. He has come to take you into himself and to keep you there. He is the goal. A friend of mine um, who, was, who was the campus minister for RUF when I was at Tennessee named John Stone told a story that always stuck with me about this very thing. It's a story about um, a young couple he knew that was getting married. At one point that he had probably counseled not to get married, but he ran into the, into the bride-to-be, one of his former students at, you know, somewhere out shopping, and she told him with great excitement that the wedding was on and it was happening soon. And he said, oh, great. He, go, he goes, tell me, tell me more about what you love about the man you're marrying. And she went into full detail describing the wedding. She said, you know what, the wedding's going to be incredible. We got this florist. This is the band that's coming. We thought we'd never be able to get them, but here's the date. 
you know, it's going to be awesome, you should come. And John said, okay, great, tell me the man's name again that you're marrying. And she goes, oh, man, the party's going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, we have the, you know, all the details are working out perfectly. You know, it's exactly as we hoped it would be. And John finally said, and you don't know John, but like John, it's pretty direct. And he said, you don't, you don't love this man at all, do you? And tears started welling down her eyes. And she was forced to admit right there that, that, no, she wasn't really in love with him. That she had gotten things backwards, that she was marrying this man to have a wedding and not having a wedding to get to the man, right? Um, you know, it's possible to get those things confused. It's possible to ask Jesus to come into your life to get something from him or to ask him to get you to a pool, when everything he's given, when everything God's given you is ultimately just to get him, you to him. He is the goal. He is the groom, right? Uh, everything else is just trappings. He is the groom. He is the Bethesda pool. He is, he is the wine. He is the word made flesh. And some of you need to hear that this morning because it's really easy, even in a religious culture like ours, and I know that, you know, slightly religious, whatever you want to say it, depending on where you live and where your life operates, that it's easy to to think about all the trappings of religious life or just the trappings and busyness of life and to forget about the groom. The central reality that John is trying to push into our lives is that your main job, that your main responsibility, that the main thing that God has come to give you is himself. Himself. He is the source of, of our desires, right? Second thing I think it's important to reiterate that this morning is because some of you need to hear once again that Jesus really is sufficient for you. That you don't need to clean yourself up or clean your past up or get to a certain place in life before you find yourself, uh, before you find him offering himself to you. His friendship is for you this morning. Matthew Henry, and different people have put this different ways, was an 18th century minister, and he once wrote this. He said, just observe, observe. I love that. Observe. When Christ came to Jerusalem, he visited not the palaces, but the hospitals. Observe. When Jesus came into the world, he visited not the palaces, but the hospitals. And I would say to you that if you were really honest, most of you would say, my life doesn't really fit into a palace. It's more like a hospital. There's a lot of triage going on in my life. <laughs> you know. And this is the very place that Jesus came to be and to reside and to offer his friendship. So, last thing I want, you to, I want to point out this morning is that that calls us to be a certain kind of community around Jesus as well. And so, you know, we're talking about this semester what it means to love others. Um, you know, we talked a lot this morning already about the fact that we need God's love in our own life to heal us. But to really be who God has called us to be, he calls us to be a community that functions more like a hospital than it does a palace. That we would be small groups around our tables and have friendships that are more like hospitals than they are palaces. Let's just look at that for a moment in these last few verses, in verses 10 through 17, and we'll, we'll close. So 10 through 17 focus on the response of what Jesus has done to heal this man. And um, it, they really focus on the Jewish leader's reaction to the healing. And I think as much as possible, we have to remember that, that these were the people of God. So I know that we're trained, if you've been in the church long enough, like you've probably read the Gospels, 
and we're trained to see the Pharisees as good or bad. Which one? Bad, right? But you would have never thought that. Like, they were the, they were the superheroes, right? They were the ones you went to for wisdom and, uh, and like, advice and counsel. They were the religious authorities. They were, uh, I dare say, you know, the elders or, you know, the pastors, that, those sorts of people, you know. So don't, I'm not saying don't trust me, but, you know, one eye open, I guess. So, um, so what, what John is saying here is watch out for the, these leaders. Like, if you're going to be a community around me, don't be like them. Let them serve as a warning for you. So what's their mistake? Well, the mistake that, that John points out is that they are so concerned about the fact that this man is doing what? What is he doing? He's, yeah, he's carrying. He's not even working. He's not, even making a, he's not making a living, right? What's he doing? He is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, do you remember why the Sabbath was given in the first place? Here's the irony of that. The Sabbath was given for healing. You've had a long week at work, right? You need rest. Your body needs rest. Your soul needs rest. The Sabbath was given for healing. And so the Jews being, I mean, the Pharisees being good people, they're trying their best, right? Let's think the best of them. Trying to be good people, right? What they've done is said, okay, if God's requirement is that we rest on the Sabbath, and that's what he wants us to do, if we're more strict about that, a good thing becomes better, right? You ever turn, you ever like over-tighten something on a, like you're, I don't know, you're making something, a piece of furniture from Ikea or something, and over-tighten the screws on something, or a basketball goal? What happens when you over-tighten the screws? The wood cracks, right? So the Pharisees have over-tightened the screws here, and all of a sudden, the purpose of the Sabbath is falling apart. Because, you know, ironically, the Sabbath was created for healing, and what's just happened? What's just happened? The man's been healed. And so they're focused on this man getting it right instead of celebrating the work of God and healing this man. And the point is this, that it is possible for religious people to be a community that is so focused on behavior and getting everything right and turning the screws up on rules that we forget to celebrate the work of God in healing people. And when that happens, when we are more focused on how someone carries their mat or fill in the blank, then we are the work of God in healing them, then we've missed it altogether. We've missed it. What's happened is this. Jesus has healed this man, and God's people have convinced him that he is still broken. Right? They've, take, they've taken a healed man and convinced him that he is still broken. And Jesus says, no, be a community that knows how to celebrate the work of God in your life and to invite, to invite to give your friendship to people who don't have their act together, to invite people into your life who don't measure up, prepare to open your home to those who have taken their mat and who need a new home, but may not be trained to be just like you. Live as a hospital, not as a palace. Um, conclude with a story this morning. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Gibson was living in Manhattan, and she was on her way to get coffee as normal. And she noticed that out on the curb, next to some trash cans, was a picture on a Manhattan curb. And Elizabeth, in the interview, said, you know, I had a real debate with myself. I almost left the, the canvas there between the two garbage cans because it was so big, and I kept thinking to myself, why are you taking this thing back into your crowded apartment? 
But she looked at the painting and thought, you know what, it's beautiful, it's colorful, i got to have that thing. And so, um, in her own words, it had a strange power over her, and so she took it back. And she finally thought, you know what, I wonder, I wonder, what, I wonder if there's anything to the painting. And so she had an art expert come over, and what they found was that the painting was a painting entitled Three People, 1970 canvas by the celebrated Mexican art artist Rufino Tomeo. And the painting had been stolen 20 years ago and had been the subject of an FBI investigation that whole time. The painting, an abstract depiction of a man and a woman and another figure in vibrant colors, had been valued by art experts at well over a million dollars lying out on the curb. Miss Gibson said she didn't suspect that the painting had any value at all when she found it. She said, though, when she saw it, it was so overpowering, and yet it had a cheap frame. So overpowering, and yet it had a cheap frame. And so she took it home and hung it in her living room. I want that story to be true of me one day. I want to find something. We do have things that, in our house that people have thrown away, and I imagine they're worth a lot of money in my own imagination, but I would love it to be true of me one day. What I love most about her story, though, is her last comment. When she looked at the painting, it was so overpowering, and yet it had a cheap frame. And I think that's a good picture of Jesus' work here in this passage and in us. We are the cheap frames into which God inserts the overwhelming, overpowering love of Christ. Now, in saying that, I don't mean to suggest that you don't have dignity. I just mean more to suggest that God does not need you to look really good before he puts his gospel on display in your life. You just need to take seriously the question, do you want him to heal you? Do you want him to so disrupt your life and to intrude upon your sin patterns and your relationships and your comfortable routines Maybe even to replace your hopes and dreams, your Bethesda pools, with something he wants to give you. Do you want him to do that in such a way that your life takes on the character of his son? And if yes, if you're willing to say yes to Jesus' friendship on those terms, then you'll find that you can take up your mat and find a new home in him. And also invite others to live in such a way that you invite others to find that home as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning and pray that you would, God, that you would, um, you would give us the courage to say, yes, we want to be healed. We want to, we want to change. We want to see your power at work in our lives. Um, God, we want to walk away from the things that have entangled us. And we want to see that just not for who we are spiritually, Father. We want to see your whole world renewed and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray for that. Lord, we pray also that just as Jesus was in the habit of going not to the palaces, but to the hospitals. We pray, Father, that we might be a place where broken people can come and find rest and find cheap frames um, in which the power of the love of Jesus Christ is being displayed. Lord, would you give us humility to do that? Would you give us courage? Would you give us all that we need and all that Jesus has won for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.